0: Uh, man i am I, I feel a little nervous um, today because i I just feel like the passage we 're in is um, just so life changing that uh, my nervousness is um, in one sense personally like don 't screw it up. <laughs> Now, thankfully, it's not in my hands. I mean, it is partially like I could spend the whole time talking about a cucumber or something and be like, hey, you should have preached the word. But the power of the word of God is that when it's proclaimed, it's not me that's making it powerful. That's not, if it was, we should just stop right now. Thankfully, it's God that makes it powerful. And this is a section of scripture that is powerful. Um, are all sec- sections of scripture powerful? Yes. Um, this has a power to it that is I believe, and and one of the reasons is because where we've been the last few weeks. So we've been in John chapter 3, and John chapter 3 has three main characters, so to speak. Jesus, Nicodemus, and John the Baptist. And at the beginning of John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He tells Nicodemus, Jesus tells Nicodemus, it is faith alone in Jesus that saves us, okay? Okay. It's faith alone in Jesus that saves us. Placing your life in his hands, that's what saves you. Nicodemus had not grown up thinking thinking that way. This is new to Nicodemus, even though we looked at that, and you could go back and look at those uh, sermons as well, that uh, Jesus shows Nicodemus like, hey, this is the way it's been. This is not, shouldn't be a huge surprise, but you need to change the way you're thinking. I feel like Jesus kind of sometimes has to say that. It's like, well, that's not what I think. It's like, well, that's why I'm here, is for you to adjust the way you think. Um, and so that's Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus. And then they leave Jerusalem and they start going north and they go to where John the Baptist is. And then while they're uh, watching John the Baptist, a bunch of John the Baptist followers leave him to go to Jesus. And John the Baptist's friends are like, you're mad about this, right? We just lost our following. And John the Baptist says, I have no greater joy than people leaving me to go to Jesus. And and so that was a beautiful, but then John the Baptist uh, uses his gift as a prophet and speaks really clearly by saying, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. That's John the Baptist. One of the last things we hear John the Baptist says, whoever Whoever believes the Son, believes Jesus, has eternal life. And today, the next section, chapter 4, is like, let's put this to the test. Let's put everything that we learned in John chapter 3 to the test. It's not an accident that the events of John 4 come right after 3. So after leaving this area, they're continuing to go north, and they are going to go into this region called Samaria. You, you might know this, this story, then the story of the Good Samaritan. So you might be like, oh yeah, Samaria. They're, they're going into this region, and Samaria is not like a different country, it's a different region inside of israel so that's the way they would have viewed it on the ground is that's a that's an area that is in our country but it is a very different part and one of the reasons for this is because right after the reigns of david and solomon so so We got the time of Jesus 2,000 years ago. We're now going back almost another 1,000 years into history. And after the times of David and Solomon, there was a civil war in Israel. And the civil war resulted in there being a split in the country, the north and the south. And life was like that for a long time. For a long time, there was life, a whole government in the north and a whole government in the south and the capital of the north the capital of the south is jerusalem the capital of the north is samaria okay so it's like the other so kind of think of our civil war almost but this is a totally different level because for hundreds of years there were two countries samaria and Jerusalem. And then in 722 BC, this is all context for this conversation that Jesus is going to have with one person. So in 722 BC, the Assyrians came and decimated the north conquered the north, they weren't able, Babylon would have to come and conquer Jerusalem, but they conquer the north, and what they do, they have this fascinating, uh, just the way that they thought of warfare was very psychological, so one of the things that they did when they conquer people is they just take all the people out of there, and they just say, hey, all you people who live here in this entire country, we're relocating you, and they relocated them to Assyria, the only people they left behind were the people who were too worthless to move. Not worth the time or energy. Or, and this is the perspective of the people on the ground, they were too worthless to move or they had been uh, working behind the scenes with Assyria. So they were in on it. Okay. So the people who are left behind are too worthless to move or had been working behind the scenes. Then what Assyria did, would they take a whole other group of people and move them to where those people used to live. And so your identity totally changes all that stuff. So now there are these, these new people who've come in with the worthless people and the treacherous people, and then they start having families together. And those are the Samaritans. So for for a Jewish person, they're viewing those as as half breeds uh, is the way that they're viewing it. They're they're viewing um, these people as people who were probably like co-conspirators. Um, th- there were a lot of things that were happening. Then on top of that, in 400 BC, the north these people decided to build their own temple. So the Bible had said before, like you know, God is in the temple and Jesus like tore uh, and opened the way for all people to come to him. But there was a temple in Jerusalem. Well, the Samaritan said, we're going to set up our own temple and have kind of like a competing place of worship. Uh, then <laughs> in 120 BC, people came from Jerusalem. The leader of the time in Jerusalem came up with an army and destroyed that temple and decimated it. And so, which is 120 BC, so we're only talking 100 years before John chapter 4, that that had been totally decimated. So, by the time of Jesus' day, tensions were high, is probably an understatement between people living in Jerusalem or Jewish people living around the Sea of Galilee and the Samaritans. Tensions were so high with these worthless people, they would have said, and they would have even, you would be defiled, almost. Like, you would have to take a shower, spiritually speaking even, through their eyes. this the way they're viewing it. If they even had an encounter with a Samaritan. And so, John chapter 4, after all of John chapter 3, Jesus is like, hey, let's go to Samaria. Sits down, and in his infinite wisdom, he sends all the disciples to go into town and buy food. And he goes to a well, and it's just him and a lady. Just two people here. And they're at a well that's called Jacob's well. Because a thousand years before all of everything we'd already talked about, Abraham was sent west, and they were at this arid place. Jacob, his son, gets there, and they're like, we're going to die here without any water. And God shows them where to dig. And they drill a hole and find water. And it's still today in 2021, that well is a vibrant water source to that region. It's crazy. And so, so they just happened to be at the well where Jacob had, had dug. And now it's Jesus and a Samaritan woman. I mean, you, we could do a whole series just on this moment in John chapter 4 but we pick up their conversation Jesus is tired he's thirsty, it's arid, they've been walking it's mountainous and he goes next to the well, he asks this woman for a drink of water and here's uh, um, and she can't believe that he's asked her for a drink of water and his response to her is in verse 10 of John chapter 4 we'll start at verse 10 Jesus answered her If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He says things to her that she's never heard of before. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? And did his sons and his livestock, as did his sons and his livestock? Verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus doesn't even address the etiquette of who he is supposed to or not supposed to talk to. He doesn't even mention it. Doesn't even mention the etiquette of it all. He lets her know, even when she brings it up, which we didn't read, but she brings up the etiquette of, you're not supposed to be talking to me. And he lets her know if she knew the gift of God, if she knew who he is, she would be asking him for a drink of living water. She would be cutting through all of the Samaritan stuff and just be like, hey, I don't care what you are or I am racially, I need what you have. He's saying, like, she would ask him for living water. And, uh, man, in keeping what we've already seen multiple times in the book of John, is Jesus seems to delight in saying things that knock us off off balance. Like, almost every time he comes out of the gate with a statement or a question, it's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Like, when he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, my mom (laughs) is like... I'm fully grown, <laughs> you know, like, like he's, he's like knocked off course because he's like, I don't understand the words you're saying, you know, it, and I think Jesus, it's not like he's a bad communicator. Um, anyone who went toe-to-toe with him would know that uh, they, they are in, that he is in the class by himself in, in his ability to communicate. So Jesus saying the things he's saying is very intentional to lead her where he's wanting to to lead her. Um, She replies um, that he has nothing to get water from. She came with some buckets. He didn't. You have nothing to get water from. And she also understands that Jesus is claiming that he has better water than what for over a thousand years has been the primary source of water to that community. And he comes up saying, I've got something better. And she's like, I know this area well. I'm not tracking with you. (laughs) And uh, if you drink from Jacob's well, he tells her, you will thirst again. If you drink from the well that Jesus is talking about, you will never thirst again. You will have eternal life. Jesus was last saying these things. He was last saying eternal life to Nicodemus. John the Baptist was preaching eternal life. And now Jesus is bringing up eternal life with a Samaritan woman. She wants to have this type of water. She doesn't want to have to draw water anymore. And when she said, give me this water, when she said that, I think what Jesus could have easily said here is great. Thank you. This is amazing. Thank you for your heart. Um, here, believe in me and you'll have everlasting life. That's, I think that would have been the quickest most to the point, it's a hot day. <laughs> We're not we don't have a lot of shade around here. I'm thirsty. I you know, I'm in a hurry maybe. And um, trust me as your savior, see you later. And what I love about Jesus is he refuses. He knows what people need. And so he says what we need him to say to get us where we need to be. So what he says to her in verse 16 is, go call your husband and come here. Go get your husband first and then come back. The woman answers him in verse 17, I have no husband. That's all she says. I have no husband. Okay. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jews weren't even supposed to be talking with Samaritans. Jesus is not only talking with her, Jesus takes a step closer. Step closer to her life And remember, one of the things that came out in John chapter 3 is that Jesus never reveals what he doesn't intend to heal. Jesus never reveals what he doesn't intend to heal. He's not on a shaming mission here. He doesn't reveal. He never reveals what he doesn't intend to heal. Jesus asks her for her husband to come. There is no husband. There's no husband because she's had five husbands. And this is... Gets a little, so the way that the Greek is written here and the way that the sentence is written here, it can mean two things, actually. So the text is not clear. We we just won't know until we ask her one day. But it, it either means that she's been married five times or it can mean that she's had affairs over the years with five men who were all married. She had affairs with five husbands. It can equally say that. And the one she is with now is not her husband. So, this is why she is alone in the middle of the day drawing water. In the cool of the morning is when the ladies went, the ladies of the community in the cool of the morning would go to the well to draw water. This woman is not just an outcast from what should be Jesus' eyes. She's not just an outcast from people who worship based in Jerusalem. This woman is considered too bad. She's considered too much of a home wrecker, too much of a shame to the community to even be around other Samaritans. So, in a community of outcasts, she has been cast out of that community. So she's an outcast of the outcasts. And we don't know her story. And the way Jesus speaks to her, um, he does. We don't know what her life was like. We don't know the shame possibly she lives with. Um, And as I've studied this, I've been convinced that I think Jesus shared details with her in just those two sentences I think he shared details with her that no one else on planet Earth knew besides her. Just in two verses, he he lets her know things that no human could ever know. Because look at her response in verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I mean if everybody in town knew those things about her, I think her response would be, who have you been talking to? Have you been in town? That's what they all say about me. But for her to go, when he says, here is your situation of your relationships, her response is, you're a prophet. You only know things that God could know. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She points to Mount Gerizim nearby. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. I, I find what she does and I think she's doing this, not purposely, but I think she's doing it because this is what humans do, um, is Jesus gets really close to her. Jesus presses really close into the most secretive part of her life, potentially. And she wants to have a theological conversation with him. I think it's kind of like, a. can we change the subject here? Can we talk about something else? Um, our fathers, they happen to worship. Um, I, she could be genuine and having like a genuine, like I want to worship God. Uh, do I worship him here or here? I think it's interesting how, she, how he presses so closely and she starts having this theological debate with Jesus where, where she is asking him about, hey, where should people worship? Where should people worship? Um, The Jews say in Jerusalem. Samaritans say on Mount Gerizim. And Jesus' response is a time is coming really soon. Really, really soon for her where the correct answer is neither. Jerusalem, Mount Gerizim, neither. Where do you worship God? None of those places. The the answer is, is neither at this moment. And Jesus is kind to her. He's clear with her, but it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't correct her views, correct her views. And Samaritans, interestingly, uh, it's tracked to kind of all the way things played out Was Samaritans believed the Bible but they only accepted the first five books of the Bible. It's known as the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So they only accepted those five books, the Samaritans did, where where those who are worshiping in the temple in Jerusalem accepted all 39 books of the Old Testament. So Jesus here, even in saying, you worship what you do not know, because there's a lot of stuff that are in those other books, outside those five books, of how we worship God. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And what, what he is saying here, I think, is both the Savior is coming from the Jews, but then also that, that the information about our salvation is found in all 39 of those books. And so he, he is engaging her in this conversation and correcting her view about where, where you know truth and and how to get to God, and what truth to look to for how to get to God. He then, though, brings it home to her in verse 23. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Not in the temple in Jerusalem, but in spirit and And truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in Spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, "I know that Messiah is coming; He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things." Jesus said to her, "I who speak I who speak to you am He." Worship is no longer making sure that you walk into the right building. The Father, God the Father, is seeking people who will worship Him in spirit and truth. The unseen realm is where eternal life will be found. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So, any person, even the most outcast of all outcasts, can hear these words and believe spirit and truth. Words that Jesus used with Nicodemus, John the Baptist shared these words with people. She tells Jesus that she knows the Messiah is coming, and when he does, he will share all things. Everything that people need to know, he will share it with them. Isn't that amazing? She's telling Jesus, everything that people will need to know, the Messiah will share it with people. He looks at her eye to eye with clarity that no one on earth had heard up to this point and looks at her and says person to person, I who speak to you, I who speak to you am he. What's crazy is like, she doesn't speak again in this conversation. The last thing that she said is, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell you all things. That's the last thing in her conversation with Jesus that She says, And he says, I who speak to you am he. And then, so potentially it could have been like, what happened? Because that could have been the end of the story. Because then, as things usually happen, when you're right in the crux of the most amazing conversation, like the kids come in and start yelling something. You're like, man, we were right there. So right there at this time, the disciples come back. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back, you know, to be like, no. But then they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? What are you trying to get from her? Or why are you talking with her? They knew... Jesus doesn't have accidental conversations, you know. I think they're like, hey, guys, let's stay back. This is purposeful. Something's going on here. So the woman, verse 28, left her water jar, went away into town and said to the people. So now we get to see what she viewed. Verse 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And I love, they don't reject her. They went out of the town and were coming to him. I mean, it's... So, a ton of stuff is fascinating here. So, so she doesn't talk to Jesus. Uh, you know, we don't know what's happening, but we know she has been radically changed. When Jesus says, I am him. The one you are looking for, you're looking at him. We know, she totally rewrites her life. Totally changes to the point where she came to the well to get water and she doesn't come what she she doesn't get what she came for she actually runs back into town leaves the water jars behind because she had found greater water and then the next time we hear her speak here in verse 29 come see a man who told me all that I ever did can this be the Christ This, uh, man, I I wrestled with what she said a bunch this week. I, I was, you might not read this this way, but I was just like, why did she say it that way? Why, I mean, have any of you ever gone up to somebody and say, come and see someone who told me everything I've ever done? Like, have you ever even thought about telling other people about Jesus in that way? You know, I mean, she could have said, like, I found the Messiah. Guys, I found him. I even know his name. Uh, She might actually not have known his name. But I found him. Hey, come. Come with me, guys. I found him. She, She says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And one thing is, he only said two sentences to her. So he didn't tell her all she's ever done. He only said two sentences. But... I think he said the two sentences to her to let her know he knows everything she's ever done. And I think she shows us such an amazing window into her soul and such a beautiful reality of Jesus because if you think about her life, the people who knew her rejected her. The people who thought they knew her rejected her. And I imagine her life was full of rejection every day. And she probably felt most at peace when she was around people who didn't know who she was. To be anonymous in a crowd was maybe at least a few moments of peace in my life until I'm around people who know me and who will reject me. And I'm sure that brought her shame uh, sure, there are times she wished she had never done the things she did, but maybe it also brought her a lot of anger too because people didn't know the whole story and didn't know the things in her life that maybe have led to some of the things in her life as well. So it was like, if only people knew me maybe better, like they know me enough to reject me, but maybe if they knew me a little better than that. And all I can hear is John chapter 3 saying, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world but to save it And there's no clearer example, I think, that we see of him going straight to that after saying this. Uh, Then look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So we we skipped ahead a few verses. There was a section about nine verses where the disciples are trying to get Jesus to eat. They're like, hey, you sent us away for food. We've got food. He's like, it's not about food. They're like, well, we got food. Are you eating somewhere else? He's like, I'm doing what God sent me to do. I'm full. I'm full of that, okay? And so finally, it gets back to the Samaritan woman in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony that he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world." Amazing, Like Jesus talking to Nicodemus about, it's okay, do you want to cheer? Go, like, yes, I feel it, man. I I saw a few faces that were like cheering. I was like, well, let's not hold that back. Um, He's worthy of that. Um, It's crazy, like Jesus is trying to convince Nicodemus that he's a savior of the Jewish people. And Jesus is trying to blow up that view. And Nicodemus isn't a bad guy. He's just trying to understand these things, I think. Then hear these people meet Jesus and like, he's the savior of the world. (laughs) Like, I don't care what, where he came from. He is the savior of the world. For two days, Jesus is staying with them. Many more Samaritans believed as they spend time with Jesus. Nicodemus struggled to understand these things. She and these other Samaritans, I think we get to see where this is going and where Jesus is leading his kingdom. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world and man I, I think a few like I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to show each of us and you know I, I think like we, we could have spent the Sunday on Palm Sunday And, like, that is historically where we go, and probably in future years, we'll we'll really focus on the impact of Jesus entering Jerusalem, but it just felt too right that this is what we're supposed to preach this day before Easter to, I think, set the tone of... He is radically for the outcasts of the outcasts, for all of us. And um, man, I think one big observation um, of, that I think will, will impact, should impact all of us, is that Jesus is the only one who can tell you everything you've ever done. He truly, Jesus is the only one who could tell you everything you've ever done. You could try and bring Buddha back from the dead and Buddha would, I, I can't do that. Muhammad can't do that. Um, Your closest friends might know a lot about you. Your parents are going to know a whole bunch about you. Your spouse is going to know a whole bunch about you. A counselor is going to learn a whole bunch about you. And it will all be partial knowledge. Jesus is the only one who will know everything you have ever done. And he did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. And that is why she is so set free, is like the very one who could have most rejected me, most accepted me. And that is true for her and it's true for us. you like, that is an intimacy with Jesus that is not reserved for her alone. That is for every single one of us and anybody in our community. Jesus is the only one who can tell you everything you've ever done. And when people get close to that, they realize this is the savior of the world. No one's excluded from this. And then second is a come and see is a natural response to knowing Jesus. If if you remember early on when Andrew first meets Jesus, his first inclination is to run to his brother, Peter, and say, come and see come on, you got to see him. We found the Messiah. Like no one teaches him to do that. There's no time to, for her to go through some evangelism training. (laughs) The woman at the well just like realizes that, that the one who most could condemn her, most is accepting her. And she just says, come and see. You got to see him. You got to meet him. Come on. You got to meet him. And man, I would, Ian led us in this too. But to say come and see doesn't... You don't have to have a PhD in the New Testament to say come and see. Um, a lot of people with PhDs in the New Testament aren't saying come and see. <laughs> they're, they're in an office somewhere. And uh, um, to say come and see is radically powerful. Because Jesus takes it from there. You know, Jesus didn't have to be, hey, can you introduce me to these people? I don't know who they are. (laughs) He knows them as intimately as he knew the woman at the well. And to just say, come and see. And man, I'm sure a lot of the people who came and saw were people that were not nice to her. The amount of being set free by Jesus that you would have to experience to say, okay, you need to come and see too. Is, um, that just shows how much work he done in her life and in her heart in just such a short amount of time, um, spirit and truth that can do that. And then the third question I think for all of us is what I loved, how, those, um, how the people said this is, uh, is they said, you know, we don't believe because of what she's telling us. We believe because we've heard it for ourselves and we know that he is the savior of the world. And, and I would just ask us all, have we heard it for ourselves? You know, not that, well, I'm a Christian because my grandparents started this thing. Or, you know, I've got stained glass window, my name in that, you know, in some building somewhere, but it's like, no, I've, I've met him for myself. You now, there's great honor in a heritage of people who have given their lives to Jesus, but everyone has to hear it for themselves. Do you know that he is indeed the savior of the world, which means that he's also your savior, your personal savior? And would you not walk out of this room without saying, yes, I've heard it for myself. This is indeed the savior of the world. I give my life to him. And so, Lord, would you do the work that you need to do in this place? Lord, thank you that you show us just such clarity of your heart. And that's your heart towards her and your heart towards us. Lord, would we feel the joy and the lightness and the celebration of who you are? We're going to feel on Friday what it took for you to say these things to us. And Lord, would you prepare us for that? But Lord, this morning, would you prepare us to walk out this door with the nearness of you, with come and see in our heart and on our mouth? Would you show us the people who need to hear, come and see and, Lord, would you, um, would you just light our community up with the light of life, which is our Savior, you, Lord. We love you, Jesus, and uh, we uh, just give our lives to you. Your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, uh, he, he designed communion, and um, we do this every week, not because we want it to be... Um, Scripture says, do this as often as you remember it, or as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Um, We could say, well, it might, um, if we do it every week, it might lose its significance. Well, you know, we, we worship through song every week, and our prayer is, Lord, would this not lose its significance? When we walk in, would you prepare our hearts for this to not lose its significance? And, and as we come, he gives us this freedom. Do this as often as you do it. So it's not bad if people do it quarterly. Um, but as often as we do it, and we're doing it weekly, praying and hoping that the Lord would form a holiness every week in this time and that it would not lose its significance, that actually we would, we would look forward to this. We can commune with him at any time. And this is a beautiful time as a gathering, as the body of Jesus, as family that we commune with him through this very tangible way that he gave us. And so there's a wine or juice. Obey your conscience represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. And then that's like the top cup. So just grab kind of two cups, a cup within a cup, separate them, and then there'll be bread underneath, which represents his body lived for us in our place so that he can really say the things that he says to us. And so, so uh, the warnings in Scripture are don't come to the table quickly if there's things that the Lord's wanting to do and show you and maybe invite you into repentance of. So don't rush to the table um, if you are a follower of Jesus. If you are not a follower of Jesus, if you've not given your life to him, if you've not put your trust in him, uh, I would just encourage you, like, don't come to the table right now. Come to Jesus instead. Give your life to him, and then come to the table. Uh, so, so let's spend some time, and then we'll come. We'll take the elements, and then we'll, we'll take it, remain standing, and then we'll take it together as family. So let's respond to him.